This is the Mosaic Church Podcast. Mosaic Church is committed to making disciples that discover Christ, connect in Christian community, and serve others and the world. Dear Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your church, Father God. And I thank you for your Holy Spirit who uh, paves the way for your work in our lives and in this world and in our communities, Father God. And I thank you that even this morning you were preparing the hearts and the minds of those gathered here and watching online to hear the words that you've placed into my heart. And I pray that I would be able to deliver those words clearly and concisely and true to who you are and your character, Father God. And I pray that they would take root in our hearts and bear fruit for your kingdom. In your name I pray, amen. I'm gonna start out this morning by reading from Philippians in chapter two, uh, verses 1 through 11. It should show up on the screen, but um, I'll give you a moment to turn there in your Bibles if you're so inclined. All right, so Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So this uh, verse in Philippians, I think, really just encapsulates the Christian story. it just hits all the notes, I think. Um, but it really hits hard on that point of Jesus dying. And so that's kind of the question I want to ponder this morning. I want you guys to, to sort of think about and ask yourselves, why did Jesus die? And it seems on the face of it a very simple question, right? He died to save us. And there seems to be a very simple answer to that. But if we begin to bore into that and concentrate on it and seek God's spirit about it, there really is a deepening to that question. And there are layers of answers to that question. And that's kind of what I want to talk to you guys a little bit about this morning. Uh, The material I'm going to share with you comes from uh, what we've gone over the last several Wednesdays. So if you came on Wednesday nights, you've actually heard a lot of what I'm going to share with you already. Maybe I'll deliver it in a little bit of a different way, but I'm trying to consolidate, what was it, like 12 to 14 weeks of content all into one Sunday morning meeting this morning. So it uh, is not going to catch everything we talked about on Wednesdays, but I'm hoping to hit the highlights and the main points, the main thrusts. And what we did over uh, Wednesdays was go through a book by N.T. Wright called How the Revolution Began. Um, I think there should be a slide with it. Yep, there, that's the book. And... His sort of main, the way he starts out the book, he says, 
this quote that's there, excuse me, which says that the cross was and is the central image of Christianity and the defining moment of history. And so he really wanted people, as they read that book, to, to ruminate on the cross, to concentrate on it, and to try to get at what is behind the cross, what is the purpose of cross. Because if we look throughout history, we can look at, I mean, even our time is determined by Jesus' life, right? You know, there's B.C. and A.D., or as they say now, the common era, and before the common era. But the turning point is still the same point. It's Jesus' life. All of history turns on that one moment in time. And so why? Why did, this, did the cross have such a deep and everlasting impact on the world? Not even those who believe in it, but everyone has somehow been impacted by it. And so throughout history, the cross has been controversial at different times. Especially in our modern times, a lot of people look at the cross and they see a picture of an angry God pouring down judgment on his supposed loved son. But obviously, that's not what Christians believe. Um, some, at different points in times, the cross has been feared as a symbol of military power. You think of the Crusades. People living in the Middle East at the time would have feared that symbol of the Crusaders who had the cross emblazoned on their chest. Even the Nazis perverted the image of the cross to their own gains. So throughout time, it has been controversial, but it, it has remained, the, the true ideas behind it have remained and been preserved and carried out throughout history, and the love that is behind it is still there. So even though it has been often misunderstood, the truth behind it still remains. So we know what the cross was, but do we know the why of the cross? So we know that the cross equaled our salvation, but we need to drive for a deeper understanding of, what, of the why behind why Jesus died and then what that means for our place in the world now. So if we look at the why of the cross, we actually have to answer some more questions. There's a few of them up on your screen. One of them is why did humans require a savior? Why did we need a savior? And in, in order to answer that, though this one's not on your screen, we're going to actually have to ask why were humans created in the first place? Another question we need to answer is, was it necessary for Jesus to die? And was it necessary for him to die on a cross? Is that important somehow? We need to ask, what were the results of Jesus' death? What happened in the world because he died on that cross? And lastly, we're going to ask, what does Jesus' death mean for our lives now? How should we be behaving because of this death on the cross? So let's jump to that first question. Why did humanity need a savior in the first place? So human beings were created for a purpose. It wasn't just some whim that God had one day. It's like, oh, ah, I'm bored. Let me go do something. He created human beings for a purpose. And what was that purpose? Well, in Genesis 1.26, God says, or the Bible tells us, excuse me, that God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish and the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And this is repeated again in Genesis 2.15, where 
uh, it says the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So from the very beginning, humanity was given a job to do. We were created for a purpose. That purpose is dual in Genesis. First, that purpose is to represent the likeness or the image of God. So we talk about this. Mario talks about this from the pulpit all the time. We are to be imagers of Christ. We are to bear God's image. What does that mean? What does that mean? Does it mean that we look like God, that God looked like us, that if for some, somehow we could take a picture of God, he would look like the universal man somehow? You could say, oh, well, I see this feature and that feature. That's not what it means. What it means, and this is what N.T. Wright says in the book that we went over, is that we are to be angled mirrors. So we are reflecting God's glory and goodness out into the world. So God is looking down on us, and he's pouring out his love and his goodness and his righteousness out on us. And as he does that, we reflect it back out into the world. And then, because mirrors go two directions, especially with an angle, we're taking all that is in the world, and we're reflecting that back into God. Everything that is good and beautiful in the world, we reflect back to God in worship. And everything that is wrong or broken or hurt in the world, we reflect back to God in prayer. This is what it means to bear God's image. And this was intended for humanity from the beginning. And then the second role that humans had, the second job we were given to do, were we were to be royal priests of earth, the Garden of Eden. So you can look at the description of the story of the Garden of Eden and the way it was built, and you can see parallels to the way that the temple of God is later built in Jerusalem, Solomon's temple. The Garden of Eden was meant to be a temple to Yahweh, to God, and Adam and Eve were meant to be its priests. And they weren't just priests in the sense that they were uh, caretakers, they were also royal priests. They were supposed to reign and rule on earth and administrate the operations of the planet. But what happened? They sinned. They ate from the, the tree that they were not supposed to. And in so doing, they abandoned that job. They abandoned it. They said, we're not going to do what God told us to do. We're going to do what the serpent tells us to do. And so they, there were some results of that. The results of that were that they were removed from the garden, but it didn't just affect them, it affected the whole earth. Because the other result was that the serpent and his minions were able to wrest control and dominion of the earth and take it under their command. They are in charge now. They're the ones ruling and reigning where humans were supposed to. So that divinely appointed role that human beings had, they gave up and it was seized by someone else, someone who was only interested in their own power and their own glory. Um, we can ask the question, what was that sin that Adam and Eve committed? And again, it seems like there's this obvious answer. They broke a rule, but the deeper answer is that they participated in idolatry. Rather than worshiping Yahweh the way that they were told to, they decided to listen to the words of the serpent, and they bowed before him, not physically, but in their actions. And then idolatry took over. 
and you see that practice of idolatry in every aspect of humanity. That's the battle that goes on if you read the Old Testament. It's a constant battle between the worship of Yahweh, the true worship of Yahweh, and idolatry. One of the first commandments, right? Thou shalt have no God before, other than me or before me. It's a big deal. So, some of the things I share with you this morning might be different from things you've, you've heard in Sunday school all the time growing up. Um, I'm not trying to change your minds or the way you look. I'm just trying to deepen our understanding. Um, but I'm also going to try to back up what I say with Scripture. So to, in order to do that, let's look to Romans uh, chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. And I think this will support the ideas I just shared with you. And that says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So what is Paul saying in this verse to the Romans? He's talking, he says, you know, from the beginning, what was supposed to be was, was obvious. God made it clear. But humans refused to do that thing that was obvious, and instead we exchanged the glory of God, that divine purpose that we were created for, for images of mortal man, of animals, birds, creepy things. It's idolatry. Paul is saying the problem that has plagued humanity from the beginning is idolatry. So when we talk about what sin is, we need uh, to understand have this in mind. And if we look at the Greek word for sin in the New Testament, it's this word that means, that's called hamartia. And, you know, that doesn't mean anything to you because none of us speak Greek. But what hamartia means is to miss the mark. So it's used for sin, but it's also used for things where you're, you've got a goal to achieve and you don't make it. So if you're an archer and you're shooting at a target and you, your arrow went off, it hamartia so the arrow didn't sin, it didn't choose to, or the, the archer didn't sin, didn't, like they didn't, you know, they weren't, oh, I'm going to miss this on purpose, you know, right? Like they missed the mark. They were aiming for a target, but they didn't reach that target. And this is how we should begin to think about sin. There's a target that we're striving for, but we don't attain it. We don't achieve it. We, we can't get there. We're not ever going to be able to earn our way back into God's good graces. So now we know why we needed someone to come and save us, because we can't do it ourselves. But did that salvation have to come through death? So that's our next big question. Did Jesus have to die? And again, there's this really simple answer, yes. 
he had to die. But why did he have to die? You know, was it because God was angry and God demanded death? Did God demand someone bear this punishment? You know, was God some um, divine whipping boy? You know, a whipping boy was this person in medieval times who, well, a tutor couldn't spank the the son of the king or noble, right? So there was some commoner that would be in their place. Whenever that that son of the noble was misbehaving, the commoner got the spanking. Was that Jesus? It's like kind of a reverse of that idea, right, if it is. But no, that's not why. That is not why. It's not because God was angry. It's not because God is wrathful or vengeful. He's not looking to pour out punishment on us. Jesus had to die to fulfill the terms of the covenant that mankind made with God. Both the terms of the covenant that was made between Adam and Eve and God in the garden. Remember, God said, if you eat of this tree, you're going to die. Death entered in then to humanity. But also the terms of the Abraham or the Mosaic covenant, excuse me, the Mosaic covenant in Sinai. There's all these things. If you don't fulfill these terms of the covenant, you will die or you will be sent into exile or, there will be, or there's going to be consequences. And again, it kind of seems like God's giving them a list of rules to follow that he knows he can't follow. But even from the beginning, God had this in mind. He knew that we couldn't make it, but he's going to make a way for us to make it anyway. And he's going to do it through Jesus. And so... Um, you know, we can see this idea in Matthew 5, 17 through 20. These are Jesus's own words. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. He's not doing away with the Old Testament. You, know, you hear that sometimes in modern day thinkers and writers. Oh, we don't need, we've got the New Testament now. We don't need to read the Old Testament. Jesus says, I'm not doing that. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what you need to know about the scribes and the Pharisees is they cared so much about the minutia of the law that they created a whole other set of rules that they didn't break just so that they didn't break the, the rules of the law. They were so careful about following every single line of the law, but it wasn't good enough. And that's what Jesus says. I'm not doing away with that. I'm fulfilling those terms. You can't do this. These consequences are going to happen. But guess what? Jesus says, I'm going to take those consequences on myself so that they don't have to fall on you. I know you can't do it, so I'm going to do it myself. So Jesus followed the law. Jesus was born as a Jew. He followed the law of the Jew. He kept it perfectly, but he also died for our sins. He also received the punishment. So if we understand this in this way, we can do away with this image of an angry God pouring out his wrath, and we can see the true act of love that the crucifixion is. It is not vengeful or wrathful. It is loving and self-sacrificing and giving. Jesus is God 
holy. And God took on those negative terms of the, the, the covenant on himself, even though he had no reason to, he had no need to. He did it willingly, voluntarily, out of love. And so we can see this again in Romans 5, 6 through 8. Paul says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one may dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So in Jesus' day, this idea of someone dying for someone else was really rare. And it really only happened in the rarest of circumstances when that person who was being died for was so deserving of it. But Paul is saying, we weren't deserving of it at all. Like he's saying to, to the Romans, you guys might die for someone who was really good. You might look at someone saying, hey, their life is so good that I can't, it can't be ended. I'll die in their place. But Jesus died for people who were no good, who had no redeeming value. I mean, humans have value intrinsically because God values them. Like that's how that value is expressed, not because of by their actions or how much of a benefit to society are or how much money they have or how, you know, innocent they are. None of that matters. What matters is he loved us unconditionally. So Jesus had to die. But did he have to die on a cross? Was it important? And I don't know that it was necessarily important that it was a cross, although it does fulfill certain Old Testament prophecies, what is important is to understand that death by crucifixion was the most reviled, embarrassing, humiliating, disgusting way a person could die in the Roman world. It was reserved for people that the Roman Empire wanted to completely delegitimize. And that's the death that Jesus chose to die for us. So when the Bible says that he humbled himself, that's the level of humility. Jesus is God. He's the most deserving of worship. He's the highest of high. and He went to the lowest of low for us. This is important, again, because it just magnifies how much love that act of dying on the cross was for us. So what were the results of Jesus' death? What happened in the world? To answer this, we need to kind of look back briefly at what happened when we sinned, right? What happened when we sinned was we were removed from God's presence. We lost our jobs. And, we lost, and these evil powers came in and they took control and they seized the authority on the earth. And so when the New Testament begins to talk about how, um, what happened in the world in Jesus's, when Jesus died, it talks about it using three, uh, generally using three different terminologies. There's a terminology of the marketplace, there's a terminology of a law court, and there's a terminology of a temple. And the terminology in the marketplace will usually say something about how human beings were enslaved to these powers of darkness. 
when we sinned, the powers of darkness, be they literal demonic figures or simply sin in sort of a capital S, these destructive behaviors, took control of our lives and they ran our lives for us. And we were not free to do the things that we were supposed to do. You know, Paul says this when he talks about, I only do what I hate and what I want to do, I don't do, right? You can think of that verse. Um, but when Christ died, he redeemed us out of that slavery. He bought us back. And you can probably think of verses that say that he, we were purchased by his blood or the price was paid. We were bought back from them. The law courts, the verses will say something about how human beings were guilty. We deserved punishment and death for our actions. But Jesus took that punishment upon himself in our place. He died in our place. And then this, temp this temple terminology talks about the stain that sin made on us and on the earth how God's presence had to be removed from that because of that stain of sin. So if you if you research the sacrifices of the temple, it wasn't about um, punishing the lamb or the goat or whatever in the place of the people. It was about purging or cleansing, wiping away that stain of sin so that the presence of God could now rest on the temple. And it's that presence of God is a real tangible thing for them. If you read the story of the dedication of Solomon's temple, when the presence of God descends, everybody feels it. It's there, and it leaves a lasting impact. And when Moses was in the presence of God, he came down from the mountain glowing, right? There's this deep, lasting impact. It's a real thing. And so with Jesus' death, that stain of sin can be purged from the whole earth, not just that spot of the temple. It can be purged from everybody everyone who has ever lived or ever will live, and the whole, whole earth is now made clean so that God's presence can once again descend on the place that he built to be his temple. And the New Testament talks about how believers then become that temple. We are the temple. It's not some building. It's not some impermanent thing but believers the church is the temple of God and that presence of God is now able to once again descend us on us on a real and tangible manner one more thing happened with Jesus's death and that was that God's kingdom was re-established or established depending on how you want to phrase it on earth once again but this is not like a kingdom it's not like earthly kingdoms or worldly kingdoms. It's a kingdom unlike has ever been seen before. We can see this described in the way that Jesus' death reflects the Passover. So if you read the story of Jesus' death, it happens at Passover, right? That's important. Jesus knew what he was doing. Because what is Passover? Passover is when the children of Israel who are enslaved and captive in Egypt, and Egypt represents death and the, dark, the powers of darkness that have seized control over the world, they are delivered by God. And what happens? They go through the Red Sea, right? That's the final act of their deliverance. 
We call it the Red Sea. The Hebrew word is the Reed Sea. And the Reed Sea to the Egyptians was the place of the dead. It's where it was Hades or hell, you know, if you think of no Norse mythology. It's where the dead lived, the dead resided. And to them, it was a physical place. It was this sea. They could look out their windows and they could see that's where the dead live. And God splits that sea. He says, I have power over death and I'm going to deliver you through it. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. And he says in John, uh, sorry, in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So if we grasp this deeper meaning of what happened on Jesus' death, that commandment takes on new form. We're not just witnessing to people, we're delivering them from death. So this is the perfect opportunity for us to talk about what now? What are we supposed to do now? Jesus died, so does that mean the work is done? And the answer to that is no. Jesus came to earth with a job to do, and likewise, he's given us a job. We are now restored to that role we were supposed to be in Eden. We have a job to do, right? It may not look exactly the same, but we now have an ordained mission from God. And what is that ordained mission? It's to become kingdom people. And he Wright titled his book, The Day the Revolution Began. So he's talking about how the death on the cross was this revolution, this revolt against the powers of darkness that have seized authority on the earth. And so we're intended to continue that revolt. How do we do that? Again, this is not an earthly kingdom, so the battles that we fight are not an earthly battle. We're not meant to take up arms and march into war, at least not an earthly war and not earthly arms. But what we are supposed to do is we're supposed to take up our crosses. Again, in Jesus' own words, he says this in Matthew 16, 24, take up, our crosses, take up your crosses and follow me. And you've got to remember when he says this, this is before his crucifixion. So his disciples and the people listening to him didn't know that he was about to die on a cross. So they would have been a little confused by that terminology. What are you trying to say? But we are meant to suffer for the kingdom. It's not going to be easy, but it is necessary. The other thing, another thing we're supposed to do is to love as Jesus loved. Again, in Jesus' own words, he says in John 16, 34, and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have loved one another. So how do we love the way that Jesus loved? Well, let's look at the way that he loved people in the New Testament. How did he love Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was a tax collector, and to the Jews of his day, that would have been a turncoat, a traitor. You would not associate with them. They've sided with Rome. They've sided with the big bad. They're evil. You know, it's like in the 1950s America, oh, the communists, right? Like, 
whatever the worst person in society is in your mind that pops up right now when I say that, that's what a tax collector was in Jesus' day. And Jesus went to his house. He had dinner with him. We don't know what he said, but whatever he said, whatever he did, it had a deep and lasting impact on Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was so moved that he said, I will right every wrong I ever did in my life. That's how Jesus loves Zacchaeus, by engaging with him, by having dinner at his house when no one else would. He was an outcast from society, and he said, I will still eat with you. It doesn't seem very hard, right? What about the woman caught in adultery? So here's a woman who we know nothing about her circumstances except that she made some egregious mistake. And by law, she was deserving of death. But how did Jesus love her? Did he say, I love you, but you're going to have to deal with the consequences on your own? He said, no. He said, who hasn't done this? Who hasn't done something deserving of death? He cast no judgment upon her. He didn't look down on her. He didn't think less of her. He said he gave her a new chance. He defended her against her enemies. And he gave her a new life. He said, go and sin no more. He said, everything you've done up to this point doesn't matter. You've got a new opportunity. You've got a new life. What about the woman at the well? A Samaritan, a foreigner. Not just a foreigner, but an idolatrous foreigner who should have known better. Someone who got to stay in the promised land when Judah and Israel were removed from it. Someone who intermingled with these pagan societies. That's what Samaritans are to Jews, right? They're not just people that are also living in their land. They're people that have abandoned what they were supposed to do, be. They're people who have turned their back on the, who they were supposed to be, who God made them be. That's what the way Jews would have thought of Samaritan. And again, Jesus sits with her and talks with her and engages with her and values her. And again, this is a woman who is living in sin. Jesus knows every mistake she's ever made. She says that to her friends afterwards. Come see this man who told me everything I ever did. But that's not what impacted her. Not having some secret knowledge of her life isn't what impacted her. What impacted her was that he talked to her like a human being. He loved her. He valued her. So that's how we need to love, like Jesus loved. We also need to be sheep rather than goats. So what does this mean? We need to look at Matthew 25. That's the parable of the sheep and the goats. So the sheep, are at, the, at the last judgment, the sheep are before Jesus, and he says, you fed me, you clothed me, you visited me when I was in jail, you took care of me when I was sick. And they're like, when did I ever do that? You were never sick. What are you talking about, Jesus? And, and Jesus says, whenever you've done that, for the least of these, my children, you did also to me. And he looks at the goats and he says, when I was sick, you, you left me alone. When I was in prison, you said, yeah, you deserve your fate. When I was naked, you said, well, where, what did you do with your clothes? How did you squander your resources? 
When I was hungry, you said, well, you better go learn to fish. And they say to Jesus, when did we ever do that? When were you ever hungry? And he says, when you didn't do it to the least of these, my children, you didn't do it to me. So this is what it means to be sheep. We need to look at the people who are the most vulnerable in our society, and we need to see them the way Jesus sees them. We need to treat them like humans, and we need to meet their needs. That is how we will revolt against the powers of darkness that are still destroying this earth. And the last thing we need to do is we need to walk in the resurrection power of Jesus. So why did Jesus die? One of the reasons, perhaps the most important reason, was that he could resurrect. And he's not just resurrecting himself, but he's resurrecting all creation. This is another way that the Bible talks about Jesus' death and resurrection, is that there is now a new creation. We are made new in him. And if we look in Romans verse, or chapter 8, verses 9 through 11, we see Paul talk about this, and he says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong in him belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit of life, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I'm going to ask Christ to come up and anybody else from the band who wants to come up. What is Paul telling us? See, I've always looked at this verse and other verses about the resurrection, and I've seen a future hope. And there are verses that talk about our future hope of resurrection. I do believe fully that when I die, and anybody else who has died in Christ, someday we will be raised to life again, and we will live with him, and we will rule and reign with him in the afterlife. But this verse is not talking about the future. It is talking about the present. Paul says, your mortal bodies. When we're raised again in the future, we're raised to an immortal life. We will have immortal bodies redeemed. But Paul is talking about your mortal bodies. He's talking about now, here, in this world, if the spirit of who raised Christ from the dead lives in us, then it will breathe life into our mortal bodies. We can walk in this resurrection power now. What does that mean? We sing a song sometimes here about the God of revival. And like maybe the third or fourth time we sang it in church, I was thinking about that song because again, I had these preconceived notions of what a revival was. It's a, a tent meeting somewhere where people travel from all over the world and they get preached to and they have some emotional high experience. And that's what a revival means. And they leave and maybe, maybe their life has changed, maybe it isn't, but that's not what revival means. It means bringing back to life. And when we talk about having a God of revival. We're talking about a God who can bring back things to life that are dead. And it's not limited to a dead body. Maybe there is a relationship in your life that is dead. And he wants to revive it. It could be a friendship. It could be a spouse. It could be a child. 
Maybe they've cut you out of their life or you've cut them out of yours. God can revive it in a way that is new and whole and unbroken. Sorry. Maybe you had a dream or a calling for your life. Somewhere you messed up along the line and you missed the mark and sin came in and it ate away at that dream and it took it away from you and it holds it captive. God can revive it. That is walking in the resurrection power of Jesus in this day and age. You look at someone or you look at yourself who has been eaten away by sin and it, we don't see someone who has made wrong decisions and chosen evil. We some, see someone who is broken and hurting and in need of healing. And we breathe that breath of life back into them through the power of the Holy Spirit. See, the Bible tells us that the presence of God once more descended on earth in a real and tangible way. And it was in the upper room when the disciples were praying and meeting together and tongues of fire rested on their heads. Real and tangible. Not imagined. Not hallucinated. God's presence was there. And guess what? That is available to you. Thank you.